Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring tool where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posts at Indeed.com slash Peter. And I'd also like to thank Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Well, the inflation story continues to dominate the headlines. In fact, there was a lot of discussion about inflation on this week's Sunday morning news programs. In fact, the Treasury Secretary herself and former Fed Chief Janet Yellen was on Face the Nation to basically lie to the nation about inflation and what was creating it. According to Janet Yellen, the inflation that we are experiencing has absolutely nothing to do with the Biden administration or the Federal Reserve. It's all because of demand. Janet Yellen said that there was a surge in demand. I think her exact words were a dramatic increase in demand, and that is why prices are going up. Now, I think she attributed a lot of the demand to COVID because she said people were at home, they were stuck at home, and they had nothing to do but shop. And so they went online and they bought a bunch of stuff. And because the consumers were buying so much stuff, that's why prices went up. 
And therefore, we don't have to worry about it because, you know, it's not really inflation. It's just demand-driven price hikes, which is so laughable. I mean, remember, this is the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, right? This is how little this woman knows about inflation. Now, of course, maybe she's just lying. In fact, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she's not quite as stupid as she appears on this show. So let's just say that she's lying and it's just the crew on Face the Nation that's complete morons, right? Because they don't understand that she's lying. They just assume she's telling the truth because they know nothing about economics or inflation. But let's just accept Janet Yellen's explanation. Prices are going up because of all of this demand. Okay, well, where is all this demand coming from? Now, Janet Yellen says, well, it's consumers that are buying stuff. Okay, but where'd they get the money to buy all this stuff? You see, if they just were staying at home during COVID, if they had gotten laid off and lost their paychecks, and the government hadn't also told them, hey, you don't have to pay your rent, right? Because a lot of the money that people were spending on all this stuff, maybe it was money they didn't spend on rent because they were told they didn't have to pay. But assuming that the government didn't get involved in showering the consumer with cash and telling the consumers that they didn't need to spend that cash on their rent or making interest payments or even principal payments on their student loans, the government stuffed everybody's pockets with wads of cash. That's where the demand came from. So if you're going to say that inflation was because of a big increase in aggregate demand, well, duh, that's because the government gave everybody money. Now, of course, where did the government get the money? Well, from the Federal Reserve, the agency that Janet Yellen used to head. Because had the Federal Reserve not printed up all this money, the government couldn't have passed it out. Because in case you didn't know, the government's broke, right? The government is running a massive deficit and the deficit got much bigger during COVID. So the government didn't have any money to send to consumers that can then use that money to buy all this stuff. So the government got the money from the Fed and then the government distributed that money to the public. And of course, some of the money went directly to the public through loans because the Fed kept interest rates artificially low, making it easier for consumers to take out loans and buy more stuff. So it's not that we have all this demand. It's that the demand is from inflation. Inflation created the demand, and that's why consumers were buying all this stuff. The problem is, while we're buying all this stuff, we're not making the stuff. So we're importing it all. We're producing money, but not goods to buy with the money. And so that's what's going on. But for Janet Yellen to try to dismiss inflation and say, well, it's no big deal because it's just about demand. Because when the government talks about consumers buying stuff, the point she's trying to make is that, hey, this is a good thing, right? Prices are going up because people are buying stuff. And that's good, right? We want people to go out and buy stuff. And we're buying so much stuff, well, that the prices are going up because of COVID, because somehow the supply chains are bottled up because they can't handle all this demand that's coming from this strong economy. And of course, by the way, we can credit Joe Biden for this economic strength, which is producing all this demand, which is causing prices to go up. But of course, if we really had a strong economy, 
that strong economy would be producing all sorts of stuff. Lots of goods and services would be generated by the strong economy. And so we wouldn't have all these supply bottlenecks. Prices wouldn't be going up because the supply of goods would be going up and consumers could buy all the goods that we were making. The reason that the price of goods is going up is because we're not making the goods. We're just printing the money and doling it out to people, and now they're going to buy it. But Janet Yellen somehow dismisses any role that the Biden administration has or the Federal Reserve has in this process. Now, obviously, if you've got the government completely oblivious to the cause of inflation, how are they going to do anything about it? I mean, why does anybody still think that the Fed is going to put out this inflation fire when apparently they have no idea how it got started or how to put it out? Now, again, they got to be lying as far as I'm concerned, but nobody wants to call them out on it. And none of this stuff is new. The government blamed the public for inflation in the 1970s. You know, we look back at the 1970s now and everybody will concede, yes, that was a big mistake. The Fed really screwed up. We had all this inflation back in the 1970s. But a lot of people don't realize that the same BS explanations that are being given today to rationalize why it's not a big deal and to blame the public and to blame prosperity, that is exactly what they said during the 1970s. And in fact, yesterday, I tweeted out a page from my father's book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Doesn't. And if you're not familiar with that book, that's the book that my brother and I based our book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes on. Now, I don't have any copies of that book. It's long since out of print, but you can get a free copy. You can download the PDF. Just Google How an Economy Grows and Why It Doesn't and get the PDF and you can get the entire book and read it. And by the way, I think my brother and I are going to start working on a sequel to the collector's edition of How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes because we're out of those. The collector's editions, I think, are pretty much sold out. We still have some copies of the original version. Oh, and by the way, the only cartoon book that my father wrote that I still have copies of, and I'm surprised I still have them. You should order them. Maybe they make good uh, Christmas gifts, is The Kingdom of Malts. And you can get copies of The Kingdom of Malts. I've signed a bunch of them. They're still there at shiftbooks.com. But download the PDF for this book. But I tweeted out one page in particular, and it's called Inflation's Cause. And this page has to do with the big increase in inflation that showed up on this island. And on the top of the page, my father has these explanations for inflation. This guy, Walter Hickel, which is a takeoff, Walter Heckler, and he was in the island's first part-time economist, and he came up with a theory that inflation is caused by a cost-price fish push, right? And that's a reference to the cost-price spiral, right? Bunch of nonsense. He said, we can stimulate the economy by holding down price increases to about half a belly a year, right? About fish. But then below it is my dad wrote, the government bubbled over with explanations for inflation. And so here's the cries. You have all these politicians out there. You got Hubert Humphrey, 
Richard Nixon, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, with all their names that my dad came up with, Lyndon Benz Johnson, they're all yelling to the mob, right? The public in the island, they're all complaining about rising prices. And here's what these politicians are telling the people. I'm just going to read these little quotes. Why you're consuming twice what your forefathers did. Inflation is merely the price of prosperity. Prices have gone up because we're so prosperous. You're demanding more and you're spending more. And you're wasteful. So there are the politicians saying prices are going up because of consumption, prosperity, waste, right? The same nonsense that they're saying now. Now, my dad didn't just make this stuff up. The reason my father put this in his book, and this book first came out in, I think, 1980, or maybe even earlier than that, but the reason my dad put this in the book was because that's what they were saying at the time. And in fact, this book actually was originally published as part of my father's first book, The Biggest Con, How the Government is Fleecing You. That's another book that I'm out of. It's a fantastic book. If you can get a copy online, you should get a copy. But this book was originally a chapter, a part of a chapter in that book. And then my father later adapted it and turned it into a standalone book. So these words were written in some version in the 70s because this is what the politicians were saying at the time. My father was merely writing what the government was telling the people during the 1970s to try to get them to accept responsibility for inflation and not to realize that inflation was caused by the government. In fact, my father writes at the bottom of this page, but nobody thought of pointing a finger at government, the real cause of inflation. And the government was the cause of inflation during the 1970s. And the government is the cause of inflation now. Nothing has changed. And of course, inflation got out of control in the 1970s because the government blamed it on the public and said inflation was a good thing. And it was the sign of our prosperous economy. The same nonsense they're saying now. So we are going to suffer the same fate, except worse because this is a much bigger inflation. The reckless monetary and fiscal policies that we have enacted during this time period greatly exceeds anything that was done during the 1960s and 1970s. So we are going to reap a far greater whirlwind from this hurricane of a wind that we have blown. And because the problems are so big, there is no Paul Volcker, Ronald Reagan waiting in the wings to save us. That's not going to happen. So we're not going to turn off the monetary spigots. We're not going to put out this inflation fire. It's going to burn like wildfire throughout the nation. But it just goes to show you how the public has such a short memory. And of course, in many cases, the public wasn't alive back in the 1970s, or they were little kids and they didn't remember or realize what was going on. But nobody is really pointing out the similarities, other than me, between the rhetoric back then and the rhetoric now. You know, when everybody wants to say, oh, don't worry, this is not going to be anything like the 1970s. Why not? Because the politicians are sounding exactly like they did in the 1970s, even though the problem is even bigger now because there is no solution that's politically viable given the enormity of the debt that we have. When it comes to business, a good leader knows their limits. They know how to delegate. 
They know when they're needed and when they're not. And when it comes to hiring, Indeed can be a founder's right-hand man. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible because you can do it all, attract, interview, and hire all on Indeed. So don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed makes it easy for star applicants to shine with over 135 assessments from cooking to coding. Pick what skills are important to you from over 135 assessments and get a quick, clear view of your talents abilities fast. Assessments make the interview process smoother for everyone. Talent doesn't need to prove themselves again and again. You can dive deeper into talking about what's really important. With Indeed assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12% according to Indeed data worldwide. The perfect job candidate is out there somewhere. Indeed can help you find them. Finding great talent doesn't have to be your second job. You can hire faster and better than ever with Indeed. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. In fact, here is another very interesting fact that nobody is talking about really other than me. The 2% inflation target that the Fed has, that target actually started in 2012. So it wasn't like they always had an inflation target. In fact, the way that 2% number even came about was initially 2% was a ceiling meaning that the Fed's goal was to keep inflation below 2%. So that was the ceiling, and anything below 2% was good. 1% was better than 1.5% because it was further away from the ceiling. So it wasn't that they were trying to get to 2%. They wanted to make sure that inflation never got above 2%. Well, in 2012, the Fed decided to change that to a target. Now, what was the reason for that? Well, the reason was they wanted more inflation. Now, why did they want more inflation? Well, because they needed an excuse to keep interest rates artificially low to keep the bubble economy going. They wanted to keep asset prices inflated. They wanted to make it easier for the government and everybody else to service their growing debt, which kept getting bigger and bigger because of the Fed's artificially low interest rates. So they needed a justification to keep the monetary spigots wide open. And so they came up with 2% as a target instead of as a ceiling. Well, a few years ago, the Fed then began lamenting the fact that we had been below the target, right? And the only reason that we were below the target is because the CPI is rigged. The real rate of inflation was well above the target, but their make-believe rate that they claim is real was below 2%. And the Fed was like, hey, we're trying to hit our target and we haven't done it, so we're going to try harder because we really want to make sure that we get up to 2%. And to me, it never made any sense why they would try to fine-tune the inflation target so precisely as if they could actually hit it. I mean, what's wrong with one and a half or one and three quarters? They really need to step on the gas to try to get it exactly to 2%. But then the rhetoric got even more ridiculous, right? We went from the sublime, the ridiculous, when the Fed then said, wait a minute, now we need inflation averaging. This is the latest iteration of that policy. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Fed said, you know, we need to now make up for all the years where inflation was too low. We were below the 2% target for many, many years. So now we have to come out above target so that we can average 2%, right? We want to bring the average up to 2%. And so in order to do that, if we were below 2% for many years, well, now we're going to have to spend a number of years above 2% and then it's all going to average out. Now that was the most asinine policy ever. And I pointed it out real time because The initial BS justification for the 2% inflation target, the Fed was telling us back then around 2012 that the worst thing that could possibly happen in an economy is deflation. And they meant prices went down. That if prices actually fell, it would be such a catastrophe that we need a buffer zone. The Fed has to make sure it's shooting for 2%. Because if they miss and it comes out like 1% below, well, then we're still at 1%. Because they didn't want to have inflation so low that it might actually cross the dreaded zero line and prices would go down. Because according to the Fed, all hell would break loose if Americans caught a break with a decline in their cost of living, right? So if food got cheaper, if healthcare got cheaper, if education got cheaper, if energy got cheaper, if all the things that we need to buy got less expensive, that would be a disaster. So the Fed wanted to make sure that everything we need got more expensive every year and at least by 2%. And that was supposed to save us from the dreaded consequence of what might happen if we actually got to buy the stuff we needed on sale, right? So the Fed was going to save us from lower prices. And that never made any sense to me because I knew that falling prices are a good thing, that they're not some kind of economic kryptonite to the economy, like it's going to destroy it like it does Superman. I mean, I pointed out consumer prices, if you go back and look at consumer prices 
from 1800 to 1900. You take 100 years, and that data is there. You can see it on the internet. The CPI in 1900 was half of what it was in 1800. So you had 100 years of prices going down. And we had a great economy. The Industrial Revolution happened in the second half of the 19th century after the Civil War. And we've never had economic growth like that. We had the massive wave of immigrants that came into this country, 1880s, 1890, 1900. We absorbed this entire population of immigrants, right, including all four of my grandparents. But so many people came here and prices were going down despite all the demand of millions, tens of millions of people showing up, buying stuff, and prices kept going down. Why? Well, because all those millions of people, when they came to America, they helped make stuff. We had a real strong economy. We created, we produced more, and that enabled us to consume more. It's not like we just printed and our consumption came from printing. Our consumption came from production. It was supply that created demand, not the Fed and its printing press. But we had falling prices then and stronger economic growth than we had now. You know, it's like if you talk to your grandparents or your great-grandparents, they're still alive, they can tell you stories about how cheap stuff was when they were a kid and how expensive it is now. I used to have those conversations with my dad all the time when he explained to me about penny candy. Like penny candy is penny candy because it actually cost a penny. My father used to go to the movies every Sunday and get a popcorn and a soda and it cost 10 cents. And he was in the movie theater all day. You got, you know, a double feature, you got cartoons, you got the news. But, you know, obviously prices have gone up dramatically over the years. Well, if you were a kid in 1900 and you were talking to your grandfather, you heard the opposite story. They were saying, hey, you know, when I was your age, things used to cost twice as much as they do now, right? That is a growing economy. When the cost of living goes down, that means the standard of living is going up. So the idea that the Fed had to save us from the horrors of prices going down never made sense. But what made even less sense was the way the Fed tried to justify the inflation averaging where the Fed said, hey, you know, we've been below 2% inflation for so many years, now we need to be above it. That made no sense. If you remember, the original justification for the 2% target was just to make sure that we had enough of a buffer between zero and whatever the inflation rate was. Well, if that was the case, if we avoided deflation in the past, why do we have to make up for it with extra inflation now? Right? Why do Americans have to be punished? Basically, what the Fed was saying is, hey, last year, your cost of living only went up by one and a half percent. And so to make up for it, we're going to make sure that your cost of living goes up by two and a half percent this year. That way you're going to get your two percent. Why do we need it? I mean, why doesn't the Fed just say, hey, we caught a break last year. Inflation was one and a half and we didn't have deflation. So we dodged that bullet. Well, here's a new year. We just have to make sure we don't have deflation this year. We don't need extra inflation to make up for the fact that we didn't have enough in the past. That was complete insanity. And I said so at the time. But again, it only makes sense if you think about it from the point of view of the whole policy being a lie, being a smokescreen. The Fed was just trying to come up with a justification for higher inflation now. 
Why? Because they didn't want to stop inflation because they didn't want to raise rates. They didn't want to stop QE. They didn't want to fight inflation because they know that doing that will bring about a financial crisis because we have all this debt because of their past monetary mistakes. And so in order to delay the consequences of dealing with those mistakes, they're going to keep repeating the same mistakes on a bigger scale. When you're the main breadwinner of the family, you've got a spouse and young kids depending on you. You must have insurance, but the type of insurance that you need is term. Don't let a slick salesman sell you on whole life. Whole life is not what you need. You need insurance that covers you during the period of your life where people depend on you. And the beauty about term life insurance is that you get the most bang for your buck. You can get the biggest possible death benefit at the least upfront cost. And that's what's important. Everybody who buys insurance hopes they don't need it. You hope you're wasting your money because you don't want to die. But in case you do, you want to make sure that those you leave behind are taken care of. And term life insurance is the best way to do it. And ladder is the best way to buy it. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. There's no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone or a laptop and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithm works in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. If you prefer to talk to someone, their team of licensed agents is there to help. They don't work on commission, and they'll help you without trying to upsell you. And there are no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. If you change your mind in the first 30 days, you get a full refund. Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. Since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the best time to apply. So go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold to see if you're instantly approved. Well, another thing I said about the asinine nature of this policy, and you can go back to my old podcast and listen to them because I warned about it. One of the things I said was the danger inherent in this policy is what happens when they get above 2%, when they overshoot 2%. How are they going to bring the rate back down? They can't. That just happened. As a result of the 6% or so increase that we've had so far, or 6.8, whatever it is, in 2021, right, this year, if you now go back to 2012, when the inflation target began and you measure the annual increases from then until now, the rate is now 2%, pretty much exactly. So the Fed has now achieved its 2% average inflation over time. Over the past nine years or so, we have had 2% inflation per year. But the Fed has still got the pedal to the metal. Inflation is still accelerating. So what happens if this transitory bout of inflation sticks around for one more year and we get another year that's the same as 2021, which looks like it's going to end up about 7%. So let's say we end up with 7% CPI in 2022. Now, personally, I think it's going to be higher than that. And of course, it is much higher than that if you take the real number, but even the government's phony number, 7%, if it's 7% for one more year, That will mean the average for the prior 10 years from 2012 through 2022, right? Or whatever that is, the average over those 10 years will be 
2.5%. Now, if we end up with a 2.5% average rate of inflation over a 10-year time period, the only way the government could bring the rate back down to 2%, which in theory should be its goal, right? Because if it said we need to average 2% and we need to make up for the years that we were less than 2%, well, by the same logic, now we would have to make up for all those years that we were above 2%. Well, if we have a 2.5% average for 10 years, we would have to have a 1.5% average for the following 10 years to have a 20-year average of 2%. Now, what's the chance of that happening? Zero. There is no way the Fed is going to even target an inflation rate that low, let alone hit the target. So the Fed is now in an impossible position. And in fact, this is really going to expose yet another one of the Fed's lies and cause them to lose credibility because they never really had a 2% average inflation goal in mind. They just wanted more inflation. Because if they don't take action to bring the average rate back down to 2%, that exposes the farce behind the entire policy. Because it can't be one way. It can't be if inflation is below 2%, then we need extra inflation to bring the average back up to 2%. But when inflation is above 2%, we never need lower inflation to bring it back down. We're only targeting the years where we were below 2%, because in that respect, what they're now saying is that we have a minimum inflation of 2%, not a target of floor, and we just have to make sure that every single year it's at least 2%, but there is no ceiling. We don't really care how much higher than 2% it gets. We just want to make sure that it's always more than 2%. And in fact, what they probably might have to start doing if they want to rationalize why they're not trying to bring the average rate back down to two is raise the official average that they're targeting. They'll go up to two and a half percent. Maybe they'll go up to three percent. And that way they'll have clear sailing to create even more inflation. If they move the target from two percent to three percent and they can say, hey, for the last 10 years, we've only had two and a half percent. And because our new target is three percent, well, now we can have 10 years of three and a half percent. Right. But that three percent target will only be there long enough before it's now 4% or 5%. It's going to be an ever-moving target because the Fed can never actually take action to rein in inflation. And that's what I said. I warned the problem was once we got above the 2%, the Fed would be unable to rein in runaway inflation. And I've said the Fed should be glad that inflation is below 2% because they ever had to fight inflation, they couldn't. I always used to say, be careful of what you wish for. That was what I always thought about, that old saying, because the Fed kept wishing for more inflation. And I said, hey, be careful. The last thing you want, Fed, is more inflation because you can't do anything about it. You've created a situation where the cure for inflation is potentially worse than the disease of inflation, at least in the minds of the public, because the cure will kill the economy. The economy can't handle the cure, not this bubble economy that the Fed has created. Everything comes crashing down. The stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, the government's going to default on its spending obligations. Look, everybody still thinks that the Fed could fight inflation. How they could be that oblivious is beyond me. I mean, Stephen Roach, I was listening to him. He was on CNBC today. Every once in a while, they have somebody on that says something good. I mean, it's rare, but it happens occasionally. By the way, my interview with Logan Paul on Impulsive came out today. That's two hours. And anybody who listens to that podcast, you're going to learn a lot more about finance and economics than a lifetime of watching CNBC. 
I mean, it's ironic that the impulsive audience, right, is now going to be better informed on the economy, inflation and all that than the CNBC audience. But Stephen Rhodes was on there today and he said, look, the only way the Fed could fight inflation is to raise interest rates right now. He said they can't wait until the taper is finished. They got to start raising rates right now, which is true, but they also have to stop QE right now. They can't keep doing QE while they're raising rates. They got to end QE completely and they got to raise rates. But what Stephen Roach didn't mention is the consequences to the economy of doing that, which is exactly why they're not going to do that. They're going to keep on printing money. And you know, another thing that nobody even points out about what's going to happen when the Fed starts raising rates to the value of the bonds on its balance sheet, because the Fed bought all these bonds, it's got this $8.7 trillion balance sheet. What's going to happen to the value of that balance sheet when the Fed starts raising rates? It's going to crash because the Fed bought all these low-yielding, long-term government bonds. Well, what happens to the value of bonds when interest rates go up? The bond price comes down. And the longer the maturity, the bigger the decline. So the Fed is going to start losing billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on paper once interest rates start to go up. But those paper losses actually need to be made up. And you know who makes them up? The taxpayer. Whenever the Federal Reserve loses money, it's supposed to send the U.S. government a bill for the losses and the U.S. government has to make the Fed whole. Now, where's the U.S. government going to get the money to do that? Because right now, the Federal Reserve is sending checks to the U.S. government for all the profits it's making on its enormous balance sheet. Well, what happens when those enormous profits turn into even bigger losses and now the government gets a bill instead of a check, right? Nobody is talking about that ticking time bomb. Obviously, they don't understand it, but there's so many bombs that are going to go off, right? This one probably gets lost in the crowd. But that's another negative consequence. If the Fed did what Stephen Roach is saying, start raising rates, it would destroy the value of the bonds that they own. But the other thing that the government would need to do to fight inflation is cut government spending. Because why is the Fed printing all this money to monetize government debt? And so you have to stop the debt, which means you have to stop the spending. Well, again, they're not talking about cutting spending. They're actually talking about spending more. They're arguing about trillions in new spending in the midst of an inflation problem. I mean, even Janet Yellen herself is blaming the inflation on demand. Okay, well, if the government starts spending a couple of trillion dollars more, that increases demand further. As I said on my last podcast, if you have a demand-driven inflation problem, according to Keynes, you got to cut aggregate demand. You got to cut government spending. That's what has to happen. But there's no chance of that happening because nobody in Congress is talking about cutting anything. They're talking about increasing spending from where it is now. They just passed the one and a quarter trillion dollar infrastructure bill. The ink is barely dry on that. That money is going to be spent. It's going to be printed. And now they're arguing over the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better bill. These are bills designed to increase aggregate demand. They are Keynesian stimuluses for a weak economy, not what they consider an overheated economy. We're violating Keynes's own playbook. Even though Keynes is a bunch of nonsense, these morons can't even follow that nonsense. So there is no school of monetary thought. Monetarism, Keynesianism, supply siders, Austrian, where I subscribe, there is no school of thought that would advocate the current policy. 
every economic discipline would look at the situation and say the government is doing the wrong thing, right? What the government is doing is going to throw gasoline on an inflationary fire, yet that is exactly what we're doing. And the markets still assume that the Fed's going to get this under control. I mean, look at what happened today after we got some more inflation news. What news came out today on inflation? Well, first we got the import and export prices. And I often talk about these prices as being much better indications of what's actually happening to prices because they're not hedonically adjusted. There's no substitutes. It's just, hey, what are the prices, right? So they're honest. Import prices, which were supposed to rise 0.9% in October, instead rose 1.2%. So 20% above the high end of the range, right, which went from 0.5 to 1%, so a bigger than expected increase. The year-over-year increase in import prices, now 10.7%. This is how much more money Americans are paying for their imports year-over-year, 10.7%. That's more than five times this so-called 2% inflation target. And next year, it's going to get even worse, especially once the U.S. dollar starts to fall. But look at export prices. They surged by 1.5% on the month. That's one month. That's more than double the 0.7% that was estimated. And in fact, the prior month, which had only gone up by 0.1, they increased that to a gain of 0.4. So the year-over-year increase now in export prices is 18%. 18%. Now, you might think, well, that's okay because we're exporting that stuff. We're earning that money. That's what foreigners are paying. Well, you know what? A lot of the stuff we export, we also consume the same stuff. So if the price of what we're exporting is going up 18%, the price of some of the stuff that we're not exporting, the same stuff, is also going up 18%. It's not like we're giving foreigners a better deal than we're giving Americans. So the price is going up for everybody, whether the goods get exported or not. But also, this just shows you what's happening with domestic inflation because the import prices are a reflection of inflation outside the United States because these are the goods that are produced abroad and they are dealing with rising costs over there. Well, the export prices, that's the stuff we make here. So that's more reflective of our inflation rate. And there you're seeing this 18% increase. Now, I understand the composition of the goods is a bit different. We export a lot of agricultural products and stuff like that. But still, the point is, it's costing us 18% more to produce stuff now than it did to produce the exact same stuff a year ago. This is massive, unprecedented inflation. In fact, while I'm talking about farmers, I read this story the other day about trade and about all the empty containers. And part of the story, I hadn't thought about this aspect. And of course, you know, the author, it was a Bloomberg piece, I think, but the writer still doesn't get the fact that this totally exposes the underlying weaknesses of the U.S. economy and how completely screwed up we are. But the article pointed out that because the cost to ship goods from China to America is seven times as high as the cost to shift goods from America to China. Now, why is that? Well, because there's a lot of demand because the Chinese make a lot of stuff to sell us and we don't make anything to sell the Chinese or hardly anything, despite Donald Trump's trade deals that he negotiated that blew up in his face, just as I said they would. But there isn't demand 
to go to China. And so prices are much lower. Prices are higher where there's heavy demand, and that's going from China to the U.S. Well, what's happening is there's so much stuff coming over here, and the containers are so valuable in China because the price is so high that what's happening is after these containers are unloaded at the ports in LA or San Pedro, wherever they are, they immediately, as quickly as they can, after finally unloading them, they send them empty back to China so they can get filled up again. They don't want to leave them at the port for an extra few days to give U.S. farmers the opportunity to get their products onto those containers, right? Because they just want to get the containers back to China so they can make the big bucks filling them back up again. It's not worth the wait. So what's happening is the U.S. farmers are not able to get their crops onto these containers and so they're going bad, right? Because the dairy farmers or whatever, there's not an unlimited shelf life of these products And so they're ending up with a bunch of products that they can't export. And so the farmers are suffering because they have no way to bring their production to market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, obviously, ultimately, this is going to result in less overall output from American farmers. And eventually, we're going to have to deal with even higher prices because farm output is going to have to be reduced because we can't export it. We're losing our export markets. We're losing our customers who are buying these products now from other sources. Because even though America was competitive on price, what good is it if we can't deliver the merchandise? And obviously, if we paid enough money to actually entice these containers to wait, well, then we would probably price ourselves out of the market. But all of this is going to lead to less domestic production on the farm and much higher prices when you cut off the farmer's ability to earn money through exports. And, you know, by the way, if they make this same stupid mistake with oil, they're talking about making it illegal for us to export oil and gas because they're trying to keep a lid on domestic prices. If they do that, it's actually going to backfire and result in higher prices because it's going to result in a big decrease in domestic production. That's what's going to happen. In fact, a lot of the gas that we 
export, we don't even have the ability to, to use it domestically. We don't have any way of transporting it. It's much easier to ship it out and export other gas and oil from someplace else, you know, especially to if it's being produced in Texas, you know, we don't really have a good way of getting it to California or getting it to New York. We don't have any pipelines. We don't have the capacity. So it's easier to just put it on a tanker and send it out through the Gulf of Mexico. But the government tries to screw up the global oil and gas market by telling American producers, you can't export, they're going to make this problem worse. But of course, that's all government does, right? Every problem they create, they make worse. But let me get back to where this started, which is these import-export numbers. The bottom line is these are horrific numbers and they're only going to get worse and they are a more honest representation of what's happening to prices in America now, much more so than the CPI. But then we also got the retail sales number for October and the consensus was for a rise of 1%. Well, we rose, but by 1.7%, 70% above the estimate. And in fact, we even increased the prior month's original estimate from a 0.7% rise to a 0.8%. Look at X vehicles. We were supposed to come in at up 0.9. We came in again at up 1.7. Big beat there, although there was a slight downward revision to the prior month from up 0.8 to up 0.7. And the numbers X food and gasoline were up 1.4%. Obviously, when you take gas out, that makes a difference because Americans are really paying a lot more money for gas. But still, that was above the 0.8% that had been estimated. Although, again, there was a little bit of a downward revision from the prior month from up 0.7 to up 0.5. But overall, a big beat with the up 1.4. So this was a much stronger than expected number. But the important thing to remember about retail sales is it's not adjusted for inflation. So rising prices can result in higher retail sales. And it's my feeling that a large percentage of the gain in retail sales is not because Americans are buying more stuff. They're just paying more money for the stuff they're buying. In fact, it's even possible that they're buying less stuff. They're just paying so much more for what they are buying that even though they're buying less stuff, they're paying more money. Now, we know, though, from the import numbers that they're actually buying more stuff, too, because we have record amounts of products being imported in the United States, which, again, shows you that it's not a supply problem when we're being supplied with more products than ever before. It's a demand problem because the government is showering consumers with more money than ever before. And, you know, I keep hearing these economists try to talk about how part of the problem is we're buying too many goods instead of services, right? That's the problem because America doesn't make any goods. We make services. And because we want so many goods, that's the problem because we have these supply chain bottlenecks for all these imported goods. And they're all all waiting for Americans to just buy services instead of goods. Well, they're actually buying services. People are going out again. They are traveling. They are eating in restaurants. It's not like they've stopped, right? It's not like the days of the pandemic where everybody is hunkered down at home. They are buying services. The problem is they're buying services and goods. And in many cases, they're not helping to produce either. You have a lot of people who aren't even working in services anymore. And the companies that are providing services are now having to pay through the nose to get people to work there. In addition to the higher cost of all the 
materials that go into the services that they're providing, like restaurants, right? The higher cost of food, the higher cost of energy to cook the food, right? The higher cost of complying with all the COVID regulations. I mean, costs are going up throughout this economy in large part because of inflation, but also because of regulation. And nobody wants to accept responsibility for any of this. Yet everybody just believes that the situation is going to go away or that the Fed is going to fix it because look at what happened to the dollar today. We get more news of rising inflation and another big up day in the dollar. The dollar index now almost at a 96 handle. We closed at 95.50, up about half a cent on the day. This is the highest close we've had in a while in the dollar index. Again, what is driving the dollar higher? The belief that the Fed is going to fight inflation with tight monetary policy, which again is asinine because the dollar is losing value and currency traders are betting that the dollar's fortunes are going to reverse, that even though it's losing value now, it's going to gain value on the back of this tight monetary policy that's never going to happen. When are the markets going to figure out the Fed is all bark and no bite when it comes to inflation fighting. If the Fed couldn't fight inflation, it would already be doing it, not making excuses, not pretending it's transitory. And as I said on another podcast, there is no reason to make a Hail Mary bet on transitory inflation. Even if you thought transitory inflation was just a possibility, right? Maybe you thought it was 70 or 80% possibility that it's transitory, but still 20, 30% chance that it wasn't. There is no way you would take that chance given how catastrophic the outcome would be if that was the case. Any responsible Fed, even if they thought inflation was transitory, they would take out some insurance to make sure that it was. They would not be betting at all on transitory. They would be raising rates right now preemptively just to make sure. The reason the Fed is not taking out that kind of insurance policy is because we can't afford it. We can't afford to raise rates to prevent inflation from getting out of control. Well, if we can't afford to raise rates to prevent it from getting out of control, we really can't afford to raise rates once it is out of control in an attempt to rein it back in because that will do even more damage to the bubble economy than what would happen if we did it preemptively. So the market has to figure that out that this is a bluff, but there's still oblivious. Look at gold today, had a reversal Tuesday in gold because gold was up like 13, 14 bucks an ounce before we got the retail sales numbers. And once the numbers came out, gold dropped a few bucks. It didn't immediately tank, but then it kind of started a slow and steady decline where the gold price was under pressure all day. Interest rates, which were a little lower on the day, they were gradually moving up. The dollar was moving up. But all of this, I think the catalyst was the inflation numbers that everybody thinks somehow is going to be a springboard to a tighter monetary policy. When the reality is the monetary policy isn't going to tighten. It's just going to get easier and easier. In fact, I know the Fed has officially agreed to taper, but will they? I think the numbers for the taper are really minimums where the Fed commits to a minimum of $120 billion a month. Well, even if the minimum now has been reduced to $105 billion a month, well, they don't have to do the minimum, right? They could exceed the minimum. All they've done is lower the floor, but there is no ceiling to how much QE they could do. They're going to do as much as they need. And obviously, as inflation gets worse, 
more and more people are going to want to sell U.S. Treasuries. And as the government budget deficits get bigger and bigger, there's going to be more U.S. Treasuries for sale. So even if the Fed wants to taper, how can they taper? They have to buy even more bonds. So I think it's just a bunch of taper talk. I think the reality is they're not really going to taper. They're going to end up increasing their purchases because that's the only way to prevent a significant rise in interest rates, which of course we know is the Fed's goal. That's why they keep making up one asinine excuse after another to justify creating more inflation when we already have too much. Of course, the stock market didn't seem to care about all the inflation. I mean, the Dow was up for pretty much the entire day. For a good part of the day, the Dow was up better than 200 points, although it eased those gains by the close, and we only closed up about 50 points or so. The Nasdaq ended up surrendering its morning gains, and it closed slightly negative on the day. The S&P, well, that was still positive on the day, as well as the Russell 2000, but air continues to flow into the bubble stocks, the most recent having to do with electric vehicles. Look at this stock, Rivian Automotive. This company makes electric pickup trucks, and I don't think they've actually sold any yet or delivered any. I think they've had some orders, but I don't think they've actually rolled the first truck off the production line to the public where these trucks are riding around on the street. You can go on the website and you can check them out, right? But I guess it's the Tesla of trucks, even though Tesla, I suppose, was making a truck. But these are more classic-looking, all-electric pickup trucks. But this stock was up another 13% today. 179 was the high. It just came public a week ago. It's only been trading for five days. And it first came out, I think the low the first day was 95. I forget how much lower the IPO price was. But it's at 172. I mean, I think it's worth more than Ford and GM combined. I don't know. I mean, I know its market cap is already even bigger than Volkswagen. I'm not really sure where it fits total. But clearly, it's got this pie-in-the-sky valuation. This is all the rage now. These type of stocks, look at Lucid Group. That thing was up 29% today, another EV play. I mean, you're not going to make these electric vehicles without a lot of copper, without a lot of nickel. I mean, there's a lot of raw materials that are going to be required to manufacture all these electric cars that investors seem to believe are going to be dominating the roads and the highways. So what I'm buying is those raw materials, right? I want to own all those commodities that all these producers of all these EVs are going to need. But that's a totally different topic. But this is all part of the bubble, right? Whatever is the rage, everybody starts buying these crazy stocks. But while everybody is piling into the new bubble, right, they overlook what's going on with some of the old bubbles. Look at shares of Robinhood. Down 3% today, a new low for the stock since it's been public, which hasn't been that long. Remember, this stock got as high as $85, I think, within the first month of the IPO. I think it got off to a rocky start the first few days, but then it raced up to $85. It's now 60% below that $85 peak with no bottom in sight. So, you know, once these things lose their momentum, that's it. And it's amazing how people can just move from bubble to bubble without learning any lessons from the previous bubbles that pop. And of course, the biggest bubble of them all, where nobody ever seems to learn any lessons, 
Well, that's in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin also having a pretty big correction, continuing the correction that I pointed out on my last podcast. Remember, we got up around 69,000 when we got that hotter than expected CPI number. A lot of the whales, I think, pumped it up so they can dump it. And the initial dump brought Bitcoin down to about 63,000. And then it held and it got back up to 65, 66,000. And a lot of people in crypto land were, hey, this is great. You see, we held the 60,000 support. Well, earlier this morning, we were below 59,000. So a big drop in Bitcoin. Other cryptocurrencies going down as well. As I'm recording this podcast, we're back above a 60,000 handle. We're trading between 60,000 and 61,000, closer to 61,000 as I'm recording this on Tuesday late afternoon. Again, the market to me looking very top heavy on the cryptos, classic pump and dump on the CPI numbers. They are hyping this thing up like crazy. One of the signs of a top, look at the ads that are being run nonstop on CNBC. Now, maybe they're running these ads on other networks too. I'm just seeing them on CNBC. But look at the production quality. Look at the grayscale ads. I mean, they're spending a lot of money. These are very slick, highly produced ads. Where are they getting all this money? I mean, this is typical at the peak of a bubble, right? Where you get a classic example is the naming of a sports stadium, right? Where a company, you know, buys the naming rights to a sports stadium normally at the peak of the market. Well, you can see that in the advertising. This is a massive Madison Avenue slick type, high production value ad campaign. I mean, I get a kick out of these ads. I mean, watching them. But this is what happens at the peak of a bubble. I mean, I remember all the crazy ads for subprime mortgage lenders at the peak of the subprime bubble. I mean, they had companies that were sub-subprime. They were advertising how, you know, they would take ex-cons. I mean, you could have the worst credit whatsoever. You know, just got out of jail, we'll give you a mortgage, nothing down. In fact, we'll finance you 120% loan to value, right? You had all these crazy commercials running. Well, this is what's going on with crypto, right? All the ads are Bitcoin or other crypto-related businesses, but you got to think about it. They're spending a fortune on these ads to get the public to buy, yet the price is not going up. Sure, the price made a new high marginally, but really Bitcoin is no higher than it was back in April. April of this year, Bitcoin was higher than it is right now. So that's seven months of massive advertising spend and the market hasn't gone up. Now, a lot of people have been suckered into the market by all that hype. Why has the market not gone up? Because there are some other people who are taking the other side of those trades. I think the people who are producing all these slick ads are doing it to pump up the market so they can sell. So you got to understand what's actually going on. How is it that all this advertising spending and all this new money coming into the crypto space and all these institutions coming up, the price for the last seven months has gone sideways because there's some real selling. What this is called is a distribution top, right? Crypto is being distributed from strong hands to weak hands. These are the strong hands that rode it all the way up. And now the small minnows, right, the whales are gradually dispersing what they've been hoarding 
to all these small holders and some of these new institutions, right, that are jumping on late on this gravy train who are going to cut and run at the first sign of trouble. They're not going to go down with the ship, right? They're not true believers like the hodlers, right, that are going to take it to the grave. If they are down 20, 30, 40%, they're going to cut their losses. They're going to sell. They're going to move on to the next trade. Right. So this is going to change the dynamic. So I think, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you still have an opportunity to sell Bitcoin above 60,000. Do it. In fact, that's the advice I gave on the Logan Paul podcast. Now, I don't know how many people who listen to his podcast own crypto. I mean, a lot of them do because of the demographic. He's got a lot of young guys that listen to his podcast. And obviously a lot of young guys have been suckered into crypto. Well, maybe I scared some of these guys straight. Maybe as a result of listening to this podcast, they're going to want to dump some crypto. We'll see if that influences the price. But maybe before they get a chance to sell theirs, you guys should sell yours.